Come. Hello, Picard people, and welcome to Vintage Picard, an engaging podcast where we talk about Star Trek Picard and Star Trek at large. And this is no ordinary episode of Vintage Picard. Nay, it is not, in fact, an episode at all. As you might have noticed from the title, this is a briefing. And what a briefing is, is a smaller, more condensed, more focused edition of Vintage Picard. Devoted to one topic and one topic alone. A little bite-sized chunk of the podcast for you, as it were. Just a little bit of tea Earl Grey hot. Just, you know, to, to, to get you through your week. Thank you. And this particular briefing is going to be devoted to a topic that you may or may not know a lot about. And that is specifically Star Trek Voyager. What for? So... Before we continue, I just want to remind you who I am. I am Gary McComsky, longtime Star Trek fan, and of course, I have a co-host on this track. Hello, I'm James Sajazi. And James Sajazi and myself, of course, are two gentlemen who take Star Trek seriously. Ourselves, not so much. But the reason that we are talking to you this week about Star Trek Voyager is because this podcast, we are devoted to Star Trek Picard. However, we are not going to limit ourselves to material that Jean-Luc Picard appeared in. Why not? No, we are going to cover material that is germane, that is relevant, that is, some might say, instructive to understanding Star Trek Picard and the wider implications from the, the Star Trek universe. So... This week, we are going to give you a primer on Star Trek Voyager because next week, our next episode, spoilers, our next full episode is going to cover an episode of Star Trek Voyager. And Star Trek Voyager was admittedly not everybody's cup of tea. So you may or may not have watched that series. True enough. And even if you did, you may not be super intimately familiar with what went on in that series. So... We, being the good guys that we are, you're welcome, we are going to give you a little primer on Star Trek Voyager, similar to the way we gave you a primer in our first episode on what to expect going into Star Trek Picard. This is going to be a primer covering the uh, synopsizing, if you will, what Star Trek Voyager was so that you will be all caught up to speed next week when we start talking about it. We have to get as much information as possible about that anomaly. Fair enough, James? Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thank you. All right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so we begin our journey, our, our, our seven-year journey or 75-year journey as it, it may come to be. That, that's, we'll get there. But uh, we begin our tale back in, mm, I'm going to say, 1995. Now, at this point in time, Star Trek The Next Generation is off the air. A profound loss. Star Trek Deep Space Nine has been on the air for a few years. It's got the Star Trek universe to itself. You know, it, it's not necessarily... It's a divisive series. That is an understatement. It still hasn't reached its full level of appreciation that I would say it has now, but... You know, it's doing okay. And now there's a new kid on the block. Star Trek Voyager. Since there is apparently a slot for a new Star Trek series with TNG off the air, 
the powers that be at Paramount decide to roll out a brand new series and use it as the the cornerstone to anchor the brand new UPN network. Does this sound like a reasonable course of action to you? So in comes Star Trek Voyager. And we begin the series, as with all good spinoffs, at uh, a, a, a point of familiarity. We begin the series with Voyager docked at Deep Space Nine. And we see Quark is in the episode. I think he may be the only DS9 character that actually appears in the episode. I don't remember off the top of my head, but that sounds right. And so he's talking to, I don't, it's not important. The reason that the Voyager is docked at Deep Space Nine is because they are heading out into the Badlands in pursuit of the Maquis. In fact, there is a very specific Maquis cell that they are targeting for reasons that I don't recall. But uh, so you may recall the Maquis as the kind of Bajoran anchored but not limited to Bajorans, the terrorist cell that is fighting against the Cardassians because there was a treaty signed and they lost a bunch of land and, and now they're kind of living on the wrong side of the Cardassian border. And so they're fighting against the Cardassians to get their land back. It's, it's all very political and, and not really super relevant to the series. So I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time on it. That's good. But anyway, so Voyager is chasing down the Maquis in the Badlands. And they they are chasing one Maquis ship in particular, I believe. Possibly two. No. But I think it's only one large Maquis ship. Why is this so important to you? So the ship Voyager is an Intrepid-class ship. And that is a much smaller ship than we're used to for the Star Trek ships that we focus on. It's smaller than the Starship Enterprise, any, really, any of these Starship Enterprises, I believe. Your information is incorrect. It's a smaller ship, the Voyager. And so uh, the one interesting thing, well, actually, it didn't wind up being that interesting. But at the time, they tried to make it seem like it would be interesting. If you remember, there's an episode, a not very good episode of The Next Generation from the seventh and final season, where they basically, it's kind of like a a Greenpeace episode for for all (laughs) intents and purposes. There's some corridor of space where lots of ships have to travel at warp speed because of celestial navigational issue. There's like... There's there's hazards. There's basically astronomical hazards in that region, and they're compressed into one uh, very narrow corridor of space that any ships in the area have to go through. So uh, it's discovered that traveling at warp damages space. It like it it very slowly and gradually tears a hole in space over time, and so a uh, a warp speed limit is instituted basically to kind of slow the damage from this warp nonsense. Boo. Ridiculous. Yeah. Honestly, don't worry about it because beyond what I'm about to say, it's never brought up ever again. Excellent. I can't fly 55. What the heck? Right. Um, So basically... Voyager was made so that the nacelles, the warp nacelles, are able to kind of fold either straight horizontal or upwards in in like a kind of a V. Not the full V like we'd see in, uh, you know, with the Enterprises, but 
just kind of a, 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 not a, I don't know if it's a full 45 degree angle. Maybe it gets up there, but they're very stubby and blunt. So it's not even really. What is the purpose of this? The point is at the time they thought this was a cool feature and they, they felt it worth mentioning. The other seemingly interesting feature about Voyager what makes us special is that it can land. It is a ship that can land, go down, fly in the atmosphere and land on a planet if need be, which is a functionality that really none of the other ships in Starfleet had that I know of, at least at the time. No, that's quite true. Shuttles notwithstanding. Exactly right. Runabouts and shuttles could land, obviously. But in terms of like full-fledged starships, Voyager was somewhat unique in that capacity. It had landing gear and everything. Interesting. Yeah. So that's the, the, the ship itself. Now, the captain of the ship is, I'm sure you've heard of her, Captain Catherine Janeway. Janeway. Kate Mulgrew played the role. And she was, of course, the first female Star Trek captain. Yes, of course. And it was a thing. They definitely wanted you to know that. <laughs> and uh, I, I only mention it because it, it did wind up being somewhat controversial. But I think it became more controversial because, A, it's something they tried to cram down our throats, and B, Janeway wasn't a very likable character more than just the fact that she was a woman. Like, I'm sure there are some people who that bothered, but I think the vast majority of the controversy was blowback because of those two things I just mentioned. So there's also on this ship, there's Ensign Harry Kim, who is... An ensign. He's really bland. He's he's a not a super likable character. He's just kind of there, and he's sort of incompetent. Wow. Poor dumb Harry is is a way that that he is prominently referred to, not on the show, just by people who watch the show. I'm just not accustomed to seeing an unsatisfactory rating on a member of my crew. And uh, so he he's ops. I think he's the ops officer. Indeed, is Harry Kim ensign Harry Kim, and. The rest of the senior staff, there's Tom Paris, who is interesting because there is a tie back to a previous Star Trek episode and possibly one we'll cover later. We, I, I can't say for sure, but we might. Tom Paris is a disgraced former Starfleet officer who was kind of drummed out of Starfleet and put in the brig because he, uh, I, I, I think think he had something to do with the maquis yes which it's the only thing that makes sense given how this uh, this whole thing unfolds i don't remember exactly but suffice to say disgraced former starfleet officer and he is sprung out of jail and brought on this mission specifically to help them track down the maquis that they are searching for the reason why he is a very interesting character is because he is based on the character of Nick Locarno from The First Duty, which is the episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where there is an accident at Starfleet Academy that Wesley Crusher is involved in with his elite flight squad. And Nick Locarno is the character who is the kind of the leader of that group. And from what I have read, Tom Paris was originally conceived to be Nick Locarno, but then somebody at Paramount decided that if they did that, they'd have to pay the writer of that episode for as long as Voyager was on the air to use that character. 
So instead, they came up with a slightly different character played by the same actor that they could give a different name to. So they wouldn't have to pay that writer. That is so lame. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I was recently watching the rerun, believe it or not, of Next Generation. And that's one of my all-time favorite episodes, I'm sure a lot of people. It's a great episode, yeah. Yeah. And I thought that too, because that, uh, especially when Wesley says that Locarno did exactly what he said he would, he'd mm-hmm. stick up and stick up for the team. And, and he did, he gave up his entire career. And uh, I thought because all the great things that he accomplished up until that point, and then it wasn't fair for him to be disgraced like that and totally cut off. Mm-hmm. So I was really happy to hear that uh, he'd have some sort of redemption, but I did not know that about the uh, financial and realistic parts of the production mm-hmm. that they didn't want to pay the writer. That is so lame, man. <laughs> Well, James, you have to understand, regarding Nick Locarno, the reason why he fell to such disgrace, James, remember, the first duty of every Starfleet (laughs) officer is to the truth. Whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. Yes. So, uh, you know, there's that. And um, remember, for producers, the first duty of every bean counter is to the bank account. (laughs) Whether the studio's bank account... Or the production company's bank account, or the network's bank account. Well said, sir. So that's, uh, you know, that, that's how that works. Okay. So those are the Starfleet officers that matter, essentially, because what happens is the Voyager sets out with those crew members and a number of others. I believe Voyager is still a fairly new ship at this point, and I don't think they have a full crew complement. Perhaps they will arrive on Tuesday. But, uh, <laughs> sorry, that's a nod to Star Trek Generations. Oh. <laughs> so the Voyager sets off into the Badlands, but then out of the blue, just like that, there is this mysterious energy wave that knocks into both of them and pulls them both into the Delta Quadrant. Now, you may recall the Delta Quadrant as being all the way on the other side of the galaxy. There's, of course, four quadrants in Star Trek. Obviously. There is the Alpha Quadrant and the Beta Quadrant, which I believe uh, Earth straddles. And then there is the Gamma Quadrant, which we saw quite a bit of in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and the Delta Quadrant, which is the other one. So Voyager winds up in the Delta Quadrant. The reason they are there is because there is a character, suffice to say, it is a character with similar powers to Q in that he he has incredible, you know, near omnipotent abilities. But this person, the caretaker is what he's called. He's dying and he's dedicated himself to protecting this race of people called the Okampa which are these like childlike species who really can't defend themselves. And there's this other group of aliens called the Kazon who are, um, think about a mix between the Klingons and the Cardassians with none of the charm or uh, appeal. (laughs) So James, if you're trying to picture what a Kazon looks like, imagine that, that the meme of that guy who's like, I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. That guy with a red face. Okay, thank you. And like crazier hair if possible. Really? Yeah. That is impressive. Yeah. So essentially that. They're a terrible, terrible race. They're not at all interesting. They're annoying. They're like, 
their technology, their level of technology is well below Voyager, but for whatever reason, they seem to be a threat anyway. It's it's just, it's silly and it's a plot device to, you know, just advance the series. Objection. Doesn't matter. Objection withdrawn. But basically it comes down to the Voyager making a decision to stay and protect the Ocampa or be able to go back to their quadrant. And they decide that they are going to stay and, uh, you know, save this race because those are Federation values. And so that strands them in the Delta Quadrant and they're looking at a 75 year journey at maximum warp to get home. Now, that's the setup for the series. The other thing that you need to know is where the rest of the crew comes in. So during this energy wave and the ensuing battles with the Kazon, many of the officers on Voyager are killed. So what ends up happening is that the, the survivors from the Maquis ship wind up joining Voyager's crew. And the leader of the Maquis, Chakotay, he becomes the first officer because the first officer of Voyager was killed. So uh, he, he is a former Starfleet officer who left Starfleet to join the Maquis. So he's got some, some cred. He wasn't dishonorably discharged. He left of his own volition. So he, I guess, just kind of resumes his commission. And, and there's the whole setup is this uneasy, at least in the first season, the whole setup is this kind of uneasy integration of the Starfleet officers and the Maquis officers who don't really trust each other, but have to work together in order to get home. And uh, may this union be a productive one. The chief engineer is killed. So the half-human, half-Klingon, Belana Torres, she was a Maquis officer. She is now made the chief engineer of Voyager. She's got a temper. That's basically her character trait for the entire series. <laughs> she's half Klingon, and she wrestles with that all the time, and she's got a terrible temper. And that's it. <laughs> she, she winds up in a, a relationship and, and a marriage, ultimately, with Tom Paris. So that's the only additional character development she gets in seven years and has a kid but uh that that's like that's it that is just not good enough honestly there isn't a lot of character development for most of these characters sadly that's correct so one of the officers on the maquis ship is tuvok who is played by tim ross he is a veteran of star trek he you may remember him as Guy from one of my favorite Star Trek The Next Generation episodes, Starship Mine, or Die Hard in Space, as it's sometimes called. <laughs> That's fun. He was one of the terrorists who tried to, to uh, steal the trilithium from the Enterprise. And he also played random bridge officer in Star Trek Generations. So that I guess that movie came out very shortly before Voyager debuted or, or contemporary. What? Co contemporary. Are you all right? Cont Go on. Contemporaneously with Voyager? Good try. Nine out of ten for effort. I, I don't remember exactly the timeline, but it was close. And so uh, he was also on that. But And apparently Spaceballs. Because if you look at his IMDb, <laughs> the first thing that... The, poor Voyager. It gets no respect. Rodney Dangerfield of the Star Trek universe. 
so it would seem. The first thing that comes up after playing Tuvok for seven years uh, and, and you know, subsequent video game and, and like video and whatever releases, the first thing that comes up on Tim Russ's IMDb page is Spaceballs because he was in, like an extra in Spaceballs. Unacceptable. Oh, fun times. Anyway, so Tuvok's deal is that he was a Maquis officer. He was he was pretending. He was a mole, James. He was secretly Voyager's security officer all along. And so he he was he was trying to get in, you know, infiltrate the Maquis in order to get the goods on them to to spring the What are you saying? Anyway, so once the crews reintegrate, then he resumes his role as chief of security on Voyager. He's a Vulcan, by the way. Not that that really matters. I just thought I'd mention it. So the other important character, uh, at least in this first season, the other important character is the doctor. Now, the limited medical staff that Voyager set out from Deep Space Nine with was killed in the attack. So they are left with no medical staff whatsoever. Fortunately, they have something that is brand new and pay attention because this is going to come up later. You might want to write this down for next week. Understood. A brand new feature on Voyager is the emergency medical hologram. In the event of some kind of catastrophic emergency where the medical staff is not available or able to render aid, they can activate the emergency medical hologram, which is, is limited only to sickbay because that's where the hollow emitters are. And he can also appear in the holodeck. But so he is a hologram, a computer generated hologram that is, you know, programmed as a doctor. He has the medical knowledge to function as a, you know, practical doctor. And so that is their doctor for for the uh, Voyager for the foreseeable future. I think that rounds out all of the main cast for season one, at least the ones that matter. I hope that's true. Oh, no, I forgot somebody. Really? Did you have a question, James? No, I was just curious that um, I, I like the fact that they use that emergency hologram, which which we've brought up in, in Vintage Picard's past, on the USS Van Halen. That was pretty cool how they had all the different versions of um, emergency holograms and how they basically were pretty much free to run around the entire ship. So uh, I, yeah. I like that uh, paying homage to Voyager there. Yeah, I think, I mean, it seems like those, and I'm sure we'll talk about this again down the line, but... It seems like those are the natural progression of the emergency hologram into like functional crew members. Maybe not, you know, as good as actual crew members, but in a pinch, they can, you know, it seems like the Van Halen can mostly run itself or at least to a point. Agreed. And that seems like a natural progression of the technology. But no, James, the crew member, the, the, the last important crew member, and I put important in huge quotes because he is part of the main cast in their excursion into the Delta quadrant. They pick up a stray. They pick up this like junk trader named Neelix, who is played by Ethan Phillips, who's a very funny actor, but Oh, Neelix is, is, a, is not a fun character. I mean, he, he's supposed to be funny. He just isn't. Explain. He's written to be funny. They just don't write very well. He does his best. Poor, poor Ethan Phillips. Um, so he he kind of becomes the ship's cook and eventually hospitality ambassador or whatever. And uh, there's also Kess, who's one of the Ocampa, who who is Neelix's girlfriend, which is weird for all kinds of reasons and and tags along. <laughs> but she doesn't stick around for more than, I think, three seasons. So 
uh, don't get too attached to her. Understood. So that's your crew, at least at first. That's the crew that starts off on this journey. And through their voyage in the Delta Quadrant, no pun intended, I promise you. I'm not so sure. Through their journey through the Delta Quadrant, they run into all kinds of alien races that we've never seen before. And one that we definitely are familiar with because you may or may not realize the Delta Quadrant is the area of space that houses the Borg. Yes, the Borg live in the Delta Quadrant. That's where they call home. So wouldn't you know it, Voyager runs headlong into the Borg and they become like a, a major adversary for Voyager in the latter seasons. And it is their encounters with the Borg, which lead them to take on a new crew member about halfway through the series. Namely, you've heard of her, Seven of Nine. Seven of Nine. Through shenanigans, they, uh, let me briefly explain in case it comes up at some point. So what happens is the Borg are actually getting like messed up. The Borg have found an enemy that they cannot defeat. In fact, they're getting routed by. And so the Borg, who have already had some encounters with Voyager, the Borg Queen strikes a deal with Captain Janeway to join forces to try and eradicate this, uh, or at least defeat this species that they are trying so desperately to win a war against. And that is a species from a basically different dimension. They're from something called fluidic space, which isn't worth mentioning, except for the fact that there is one episode where they set up a species 8472. They don't have an actual name, or at least not one that anybody in the show knows. Uh, the Borg just designated them species 8472 when they first encountered them. So they set up as part of their war effort for an eventual expansion into the Alpha Quadrant, I, I guess, they set up, this is down the line, this um, training area. They liken it in the episode to something that I guess the Russians did or the Soviets did during the Cold War. They would build these American towns where eventual infiltration agents would train there and everyone in the town was American and, and like spoke English with an American accent. And, and you know, it, there was no like Russian cultural stuff. It was kind of too fully immerse yourself in the idea of becoming an American and, and acting and living as an American to So when you eventually went to America, you would know what to expect and could pass as American. Yes, this is all very interesting. They did something similar, Species 8472, so that uh, I, I think they were shapeshifters of some sort, if I remember correctly. No, not exactly. They were able to change their shape in some manner or other. And so they set up one of these human towns. Basically, they set up their own version of Starfleet Academy. And one of like the leader of the 8472 was Boothby, who was the groundskeeper at Starfleet Academy. Oh. How is old Boothby? I mean, it wasn't actually Boothby. It's not like he was a, you know, oh, okay. an infiltrator, but he looked like Boothby and acted like Boothby in this, you know, human town. Okay. That was Starfleet Academy. He was training these infiltration operatives to know what to expect when they went to infiltrate the Federation. That was a fun little nod. And in fact, that would not be the only 
character from Star Trek The Next Generation who would make an appearance on Voyager. And I'll get there. But that's a fun little cameo that I appreciated because Boothby didn't show up in a lot of episodes of Star Trek, but he was always a welcome sight. He was a fun old curmudgeon. So, um, yes, back to Seven of Nine. The Borg Queen uh, strikes up a deal with Janeway in order to try and defeat Species 8472 because they become a threat to both of them. And through the course of this, basically, the Borg Queen gives Janeway a detachment of Borg to work on Voyager because they're trying to modify nanoprobes or something to be able to use them against Species 8472. And Seven of Nine is one of the drones in the detachment of Borg that gets sent to Voyager. And through the course of the episode, the other Borg drones get killed or wiped out or something. And Seven of Nine is the only one left by the end of the episode. And Voyager discovers that actually the Borg started it with 8472. Surprise, surprise, when they tried to invade their space and assimilate them. So 8472 was just fighting back. So Janeway's like, actually, in light of this new information, you guys are on your own. Figure it out. <laughs> you, you fight it out and, and, you know, we'll just stand over here. And when the dust settles, they wind up having de-assimilated Seven of Nine and she becomes a member of the Voyager crew. So... She sticks around for the balance of the series. And ironically, Seven of Nine and Captain Janeway develop a very close relationship. Captain Janeway is her mentor. And so they become very close friends, not without their their disagreements, but they, they become very close. I say ironically because in real life, Kate Mulgrew and Jerry Ryan deeply disliked one another unofficially that's what i hear i can't imagine why so uh yeah jerry ryan's talked about it at conventions basically she makes it sound like when she joined the cast all of the press that may have previously gone to kate mulgrew about how she was this trailblazing woman who was, you know, at the helm of a Star Trek franchise right. and, you know, all this this new ground that she was getting credit for breaking. Suddenly all that buzz went to the well-proportioned lady in the cat suit. <laughs> at one time, you found something very appealing about it. Who, uh, you know, suddenly grabbed everyone's attention and there was a little bit of resentment there. But, you know, I guess it's somewhat amicable now. I hope that's true. But. So, yeah, something else of note that happens within this kind of uh, mid-range of the Voyager series. It lasted seven seasons. I think this happened in maybe season three or season four. Uh, the Doctor, the holographic Doctor, you may recall, through time travel shenanigans, he winds up with a bit of future tech called a mobile emitter. Basically, he can strap this little um, doohickey to his arm. It's It's basically an armband with a you know, a technological gigaw. It's an Apple watch. Essentially he can strap an Apple watch to his arm and that will make him a, a solid hologram that can walk around outside of a holodeck. How convenient. It is basically a mobile holodeck that he can use to walk around anywhere. And it, it frees him from his sick bay. Uh, and uh, so he will, for the most part, use it for the remainder of the series. So, um, the Doctor develops a personality. He and Seven of Nine 
are really the only characters that get any actual character development over the course of the series, which is unfortunate, but it's just the way that the show was written. Yes, you have said that. So um, the doctor develops as a person and uh, he, he, he becomes sentient. Gee, I wonder if that's going to come up again on this podcast. Hint, <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> and so uh, Seven of Nine also strikes up a friendship with him. She also kind of develops as uh, somebody who started out as a Borg drone. And she was assimilated when she was very, very young with her parents who were stuck in the Delta Quadrant after conducting some kind of experiments and like got sucked through a wormhole or something. And so she really has little to no memory of life as a human being. So she's kind of discovering what that is like for the first time, which is where the bulk of her growth from Borg to person comes from over the course of her time on the series. The most impressive accomplishment. And uh, so I mentioned earlier how there were some other cameos by Star Trek alumni. I remember. Specifically, we got to see uh, Q showed up for uh, a couple of episodes. Q. He became a foil to Captain Janeway. I guess she was the new Picard for him. I, I don't know. He, <laughs> I guess he traded Jean-Luc in for a younger model. How dare you? Well, he didn't really get anywhere with Captain Sisko. Commander. So he figured he'd go and pick on somebody else. That's true. He he appeared to then Commander Sisko once, and Sisko punched him in the face. He's like, I don't need this. <laughs> that is not who I am. <laughs> exactly. You're no fun. <laughs> Excuse me, Commander Sisko. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Q shows up, and in one of the Q episodes, for just honestly stunt casting purposes, I'm sure, Commander Riker winds up on the show number one for uh, just like half a scene i think <laughs> then later in the series we find out that um so dr zimmerman who is that dr lewis zimmerman who you may if you are a fan of deep space nine might remember as the person who created the emh and who looks exactly like the doctor he is also played by robert picardo he works now with Reginald Barkley. Mr. Broccoli. Barkley. Who was a member of the Next Generation, a recurring character on Star Trek The Next Generation, who you might recall we were introduced to with his holodeck addiction. He now works in holography with Dr. Zimmerman. And so uh, he and Dr. Zimmerman develop a technology through more shenanigans, they develop a technology whereby Voyager is actually able to communicate with the Alpha Quadrant, which they were not previously able to do. Ah. And in some of those episodes, for reasons, for, for no really good reason, except, again, stunt casting, Marina Sirtis is in a, some of those episodes. Ah, Counselor Troy. Cool. She's visiting Barkley for some reason. <laughs> yeah, well, they were really close, you know. Right, yeah. I, well, if you saw some of Barclay's holodeck fantasies, then uh, <laughs> I'm sure they were very close at one point. But um, she was the goddess of empathy, if you recall. Yes, of course. I was also thinking of the... I'm sorry to go down this wormhole. I was also thinking of the time when uh, Lieutenant Broccoli became ultra-intelligent. Yes, the nth degree. Yes, and, and he finally had... You're so good with the titles. And he finally had enough confidence to... Uh, conduct himself and, and then he asked her out on a date and she just turned him down flat 
Well, that would be an inappropriate relationship, James. She was his counselor. He was just asking her to go look at art or something. It was, I don't know. Uh-huh. Anyway. <laughs> Never. So, yeah, he, uh, they, they show up there as well. So there were some fun little cameos on Voyager. I think The Rock was also, if I recall, The Rock also made a cameo in one episode. You smell what Captain Jean-Luc Picard is cooking. Yes, you're right. This was when SmackDown, uh, WWE, or WWF at the time, WWF SmackDown was also on UPN. So it was a bit of uh, kind of cross-promotional branding. That's an excellent idea. Wow, you're good. I didn't even make the connection. I completely forgot about mm-hmm. that. The big show wound up on Enterprise. Oh, is that? Okay, gotcha. Okay. Wow. You're he impressive. played a uh, Orion, Orion slave trader. Yep, yep. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. So, yeah. And then just the, to, to wrap this up, the way that the series ends is through more shenanigans, more ridiculous shenanigans, where a Janeway from the future comes back in time and gives the Voyager, like technology from the future to enable them to defeat the Borg and use a Borg transwarp conduit to get home. You can't expect me to believe that. One of the things I enjoy by your perspective of being a diehard Star Trek fan and also Mm -hmm. someone who knows things about production and how television and movies work, was that just to keep the series at seven years and they figured instead of being lost in space, pardon that pun too, for what, 70 years or whatever, uh, time it was going to be to get them back a lot quicker? Well, honestly, I don't know what Voyager's ratings were like by season seven. It's entirely possible, uh, even likely, that they said, hey, Next Generation was seven seasons. Deep Space Nine was seven seasons. Let's wrap this thing up. I mean, again, I don't know what the ratings were like, but given the popularity or lack thereof of Voyager compared to the other series... It wouldn't surprise me if they just took it as an excuse to stop airing the show. Yes, that's it, exactly. Okay, because, yeah, because they also had Enterprise that was in the works, right? Or at least it didn't start up too far after? Yes. I don't remember whether it was, like, the next season or... I don't remember when exactly Enterprise aired. It was, like, right after Voyager, I, I, I think. It wasn't contemporaneous. I think it was, like, the next season Enterprise was on. You're right. Gotcha. Um, I think it was 2001. The only reason why I'm not sure and, and Gary's not sure is uh, we kind of went through a little traumatizing uh, event in 2001, of, in September of 2001. Oh, yeah? So it kind of, yeah, a little, little minor thing. Um, so it really changed our yeah. lives in a, in a lot of ways, much like this uh, quarantine is at the recording of this podcast. So uh, forgive us if we're a little murky on that, but I'm pretty sure that it was 01. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Uh, Voyager started in 95. So. It would make sense that it was the next season after Voyager went off the air. So that, that, you know, and I remember it being like a a clean line of Star Trek until Enterprise killed the franchise. Nobody's perfect. (sighs) It wasn't Manny Cotto's fault. He tried. He did his best in season four. Some of the best episodes of that series were the last season. It, but by then the damage was done. So no, that's quite true. I'm glad you brought that up too, real quick too. Uh, just keeping up with our friends and, and colleagues on uh, Twitter and and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. That uh, somebody, a Star Trek fan, posted that 
um, he or she said that uh, it was unfortunate that Enterprise got the, the plug pulled on it so quick because that was a point that a lot of the like Next Generation and, and um, Deep Space Nine, they really kind of hit their strides after seasons three and four. Yeah. And it was the same thing with Enterprise. They just they, they didn't give it a chance. Well, the secret the secret sauce in fixing Enterprise was getting rid of Berman and Braga, the, the killer bees, as they're called. Yes. Once they stopped running the show, it got much better. Gotcha. And yes, it uh, premiered uh, not too long after the nightmare of uh, September 11th. It, it premiered mm. September 26, 2001. Okay. Enterprise. Right. But that didn't stop Berman and Braga from coming back and ruining the finale of Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not bitter. I love the next generation. I love the cast. I love the, the like, it's my all-time favorite show. Uh, I, I, I cannot tell you how much I adore that series, but Enterprise deserves so much better than to have the entire series uh, relegated to a plot device from a, you know, half-forgotten episode from the end of Star Trek The Next Generation. These attacks must end. And Trip deserve better. You finished? But that, that, sorry. We're not talking about Enterprise right now. We're talking about Voyager. All right, but amen for the record. <sighs> anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah. I these things these things still bother me all these years later. It's becoming all too evident. Well, you warned everybody. I mean, you, you take Star Trek seriously, ourselves not so much. It's true. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. So we wear our insignia on our sleeves, okay? Oh, that's a that's a good idea for our next T-shirt. <laughs> of course, if you like the current T-shirt. It's still available at teespring.com slash choose hyphen to hyphen live. And if you've forgotten or are new to the show, then it is an outline of everyone's favorite Kuat Malat. Hello. And the thing that is framing that outline are words and phrases that either he is known for saying or are descriptive of his character. So... It's a really nice shirt. I believe we have a picture of me sporting that shirt on our Instagram account, which is Vintage Picard. So we would love it if you would go and, and check it out and consider purchasing one for your very own self. We can think of far worse ways to gird your torso than that. <laughs> I'll wait. Thank you. That, that's the most remarkable commercial I've ever heard. Fantastic. I'm a salesman, James. Natural, natural gift. I'm buying three. <laughs> this is foolish. So, I mean, I think that's all the overview you really need to know for the purposes of getting caught up on the series for when we start reviewing episodes from it next week. Now, I I could have missed something. I was kind of shotgunning a lot of this off the top of my head. James, you are not nearly so familiar with Voyager as I have been. So is there anything that I was unclear on or anything that the listener would benefit from a clarification or follow up on? We do get an incomplete picture. I think hopefully this works out well that uh, I could speak for the listener out there. And of course, you're more than welcome to speak for yourselves that uh, please let us know. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and uh, email us as well, vintagepicard at uh, gmail.com. We'd love to know your opinions on that. But uh, at least for me, while I can speak for the listener right now, 
I think you hit all the bases, and I'm really curious to learn more about uh, how Voyager and Star Trek Picard tie into one another. And that was extremely fascinating about the EMHs. That that was a cool mm-hmm. little little nod. Obviously, Seven of Nine is huge in uh, in in the Star Trek Picard universe and and in Voyager itself. So that that's a great background and and even to delve into how she has inner demons that she's been battling her whole life and uh, how she's such a cool hero and, and a great colleague and, uh, and comrade to, uh, to Admiral Picard. And of course, uh, I, I love that, how they became good friends. She and Elnor, that, that was really, it made so much sense and it worked mm-hmm. so well and, and with you as well. But I think for the most part, uh, it, it, it's, thank you. Um, you've answered any question that I had. And um, it definitely also makes sense, too, with the, with the whole um, what is life question and so on. So I'm looking forward to uh, going into the Voyager universe. There is actually one thing that I neglected to mention. I kind of gave the background on one of the Vintage Picard episodes. I believe it was the episode with the old Stardust City Rag, but uh, Icheb. I forgot to bring up Icheb. Inexcusable and understandable. So, ah, yes. In, in that, like end of season six, season seven time frame of Star Trek Voyager, they somehow came into the possession of a group of Borg children. And most of them, they dropped off on their home planets or whatever, but the oldest of them was Icheb. And he elected to stay on Voyager with them. I don't Maybe they couldn't find his species or his home planet or no, I think what it was, it was too far away. I think it was too far in the other direction for them to go back and drop him off. Your information is incorrect. So he wound up staying with them and seven of nine kind of adopted him because she saw a lot of herself in him. He was a a young boy, not human, but a young boy who, you know, grew up as a Borg and that's all he ever really knew. And so she was, you know, a few years into her journey towards becoming deborgified and, and discovering her humanity. So she kind of took over the stewardship of his education in what being a non-Borg was like. So uh, she she kind of took over his, his schooling and his integration into a society of self-determining equals. So... As we saw in Star Trek Picard, when Icheb was killed, a different Icheb, uh, <laughs> not, not version one. Shout out to Manu, <laughs> our Instagram pal. Yep. The seeds of why he was so important to her are planted at the end of Voyager. And thank you, dear listener, for overriding my stupidity. The mind meld worked perfectly that you reminded Gary about one of the most important points <laughs> between uh, Star Trek Picard and Voyager and, and what that character meant to Seven of Nine and how really extraordinary that scene was when Seven of Nine, hopefully I'm not spoiling anything for you that you saw that uh, episode in, in Star Trek Picard when she pulled the trigger and... Uh, and killed Bajazel because she deserved it. And it, there was a real deep, deep emotional connection there. Mm-hmm. And it was very personal for Seven of Nine. So thank you, Gary, for pointing that out. And thank you, listener, for doing the mind meld and making sure we hit that vital point. Thank you. Sure. So 
I, I hope we've hit all the vital points. If there's anything we missed, if there's anything you need clarification on, well, I'm sure it's much easier for you to just Google it. But if there's anything you'd like me to specifically follow up on, please feel free to reach out to us and you can email us at vintagepicard at gmail.com. Tweet at us or Instagram or Facebook. We are Vintage Picard. And, you know, you can even use the hashtag Vintage Picard on uh, whatever to get us. And we want to hear from you very badly. So please hit us up, as they say. I don't know if anyone says that, but I'm saying it right now. So please do. Terms accepted. While you're doing that, please consider subscribing to the podcast. We will be back next week with a regular episode and we will delve into... Uh, we will dip our toe into, uh, I'm sure we'll come back to it down the line, but just for next week, we have a, a nice one-off episode of Star Trek Voyager to wrap up our artificial rights arc here on Vintage Picard. It's a pretty good one. It's one of the best episodes from that series. So uh, I think you're going to want to come back and, and check out that one. So you can enjoy that next week and look forward to that. And we look forward to to your coming back so so you don't miss out on that episode when it drops please subscribe to this podcast subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you see fit be that google podcasts or apple podcasts or stitcher or podbean or spotify spreaker there's a whole bunch of others that i don't remember we're there baby and we want you to get us there so you know Check it out and please consider rating this podcast if you would. And lastly, most importantly, perhaps, please consider sharing this podcast with a friend. If you have a friend who likes Star Trek and likes people who take Star Trek way too seriously, but also have a sense of humor about it, please refer them to this podcast. We would love to grow it and we would love for us all to be able to become one big happy Star Trek family and enjoy it together. This is important to me. And finally, and possibly the most important thing of all, I would urge you, please, my friend, choose to live. Bye! I don't even... I'll just add it in post. I don't even have it open. Oh, that's okay. I mean... That was damn good. Oh, thank you.